Mosiah 26 ends with that beautiful reminder that sin and sinner are not synonymous. That there are sins that are ours versus sins that we happened to commit. And what divides the two is repentance. All of this reassurance that Alma the Elder received in Mosiah 26 is going to be essential with what we see now in Mosiah 27. As his son, dad is concerned about son, high priest is concerned about church member. Either way, Alma the Elder is going to need to hold on to everything he learned in chapter 26 as we move forward into his son's experience in chapter 27. Now in 27.1, it came to pass that the persecutions which were inflicted on the church by the unbelievers became so great that the church began to murmur and complain to their leaders. So Alma lays the case before King Mosiah. Now we already saw in the previous chapter that there is this separation between church and state. And when it came to the sinfulness of the members, and Alma went to Mosiah asking for assistance, Mosiah said, no, this is sin, not crime. This is ecclesiastical rather than political. Church issue rather than state issue. It's on you. But now there is persecution taking place. Sinful, yes, but also criminal. And so not just a matter for the ecclesiastical authorities, a matter for the civil authorities as well. So in his role as king, Mosiah sends a proclamation throughout the land in verse 2 saying, no unbeliever is allowed to persecute any believer. And vice versa, verse 3, there should be no persecutions among believers either. Sadly, persecution can go in both directions, especially depending on who the majority is. I'll admit, moving to Utah, I have so much empathy for non-Latter-day Saints that are here. Sometimes I try to go out of my way to ask them how they're doing or to reassure them that they're welcome and wanted just as they are. Because growing up in Los Angeles, I was a religious minority. Raising my children in Tennessee, I was a religious minority. And I know what it's like to be persecuted by unbelievers, but I also know and have seen what it looks like when a believer is persecuting an unbeliever. Even if we call it soft persecution with certain assumptions or exclusions or whatever the case may be. The key in either situation, according to the end of verse 3, is that there should be an equality among all men. Belief or disbelief, can we treat each other kindly? The golden rule is something that both sides should be able to agree on. Verse 4, what is it that causes the problems to begin with? Pride, haughtiness, either of those will disturb our peace. What will solve the problem? If we esteem our neighbor as ourselves. And so they were commanded to do. That word pride at the beginning of 4, I guess you could take that as no pride from above or pride from below. And again, depending on who's the majority and who's the minority, that would probably determine who thinks they're above and who thinks they're below. It's all relative regardless. And it's pride that causes the problems in either circumstance. End of 4 and beginning of 5, he confirms this view of a lay ministry, which again is going to help maintain the separation of church and state, as well as hopefully allowing the church to enjoy the grace of God, since that's the only wage they'd be receiving. And as a result, in verse 6, there is much peace in the land. They multiply, are numerous, they scatter abroad and are prospering. That's the word in 7. The Lord did visit them and prosper them, and they became a large and wealthy people. Now, are you starting to get nervous? 
This sounds like the pride cycle beginning righteousness on the part of God's people, leading to peace and prosperity. What typically comes next? Well, we don't have to wait long to find out. In verse 8, the sons of Mosiah were numbered among the unbelievers, and also one of the sons of Alma was numbered among them too. We don't know how many children Alma the elder had, but the fact that Alma the younger was simply one of his sons lets you know that he had siblings that evidently weren't unfaithful the way this one was. That can be so hard on a family. Faithful siblings who worry so much about their wayward brother or sister. This particular wayward son was a very wicked and idolatrous man. I wonder if some of the wealth mentioned in verse 7 was leading to some of the idolatry mentioned in verse 8. Like I said, that is the pride cycle at work. I often wonder too if our wealth is sometimes a buffer against developing the kind of character that tends to come when a person struggles, when they have to look to the Lord to make ends meet, instead of thinking they need no help from heaven. It seems like it's so much easier to become idolatrous when we can make idols of things we can purchase with worldly wealth. Alma the Younger was also a man of many words and spoke much flattery to the people. Sounds a lot like Sherem from Jacob chapter 7. Maybe this was a family trait. Dad was a wicked priest of Noah. That probably took some flattering words. That was a word used to describe them in chapter 11. Dad is now consecrating his eloquence to build the kingdom. Son, not yet. As a result of his flattery, telling people what they wanted to hear, he led away many people to do after the manner of his iniquities. Wickedness never was happiness. Misery loves company. Therefore, wickedness loves company too. Verse 9, as a result, he became a great hinderment to the prosperity of the church of God, stealing away the hearts of the people, causing much dissension among the people, giving a chance for the enemy of God to exercise his power over them. Interesting last phrase. Are we giving Satan opportunities to exercise his influence? He doesn't seem to need our help, but sometimes we give it to him. Two other words worth pausing on. Stealing away the hearts, which means that they didn't belong to them. They stole them. Those hearts were meant to belong to God. They were his people. Now Alma the Younger is trying to take them away from their rightful owner. And the other word, dissension. We've seen that word already in this story. But to dissent away, I wonder this division that's starting to creep up in the church. This is father against son with followers of either party starting to divide, one dissenting from the other. I wonder how much of that was rooted in Alma the Younger's role, his flattering words. He knew just the right things to say. Could he quote his dad and then twist the meaning of the words? Could he say he was publishing peace like the priests of Noah had, but doing it in the way that they forget law instead of change behavior? Either way, a great hinderment to the prosperity of the church. Verse 10, he's not just hindering it, he's going about to destroy it. He went out secretly with the sons of Mosiah, seeking to destroy the church and to lead astray the people of the Lord, contrary to the commandments of God or even the king, which again, in this case, 
was dad. So they're going against their heavenly father as well as their earthly father. They're going against the laws of church as well as the laws of state. Both Alma the elder, high priest, and Mosiah, king, are going to be frustrated with their wayward sons. Verses 11 through 17 recount the experience they had with this angel. Stop them in their tracks. Verse 11, as they were going about rebelling against God, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them. He descended as it were in a cloud, and he spake as it were with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake upon which they stood. This is far from the still small voice we typically associate with God. And yet I think what we're seeing is the end of a long process. Apostasy seldom goes from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds. I imagine it was a slow decline for Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah. And all along that decline, righteous fathers, righteous mothers, no doubt, as well, pleading with their sons to change. I imagine it began with a still small voice and escalated with consequences, continued teaching. Who knows all of the ways that these children's parents exhausted in hopes of reclaiming their sons. I'm sure there were times where Alma the Elder or Messiah could say, now boys, remember that family home evening lesson we had about not destroying the church? Let, let's review that for a moment, shall we? This is not out of the blue. They would have been warned repeatedly. They just didn't listen. And like some alarm clocks that seem to get louder and louder since we so easily snooze through them, finally God is ready to step in with a thunderous voice, an earth-shaking angel, ready to call these boys to repentance. Still in verse 12, their astonishment was great. It's not every day that an angel comes to stop us in our tracks. To the point they didn't understand the words. But making sure that they would understand, the angel cried again and said in verse 13, Alma. Now he could have added, and Aaron, and Ammon, and Omner, and Himni. Instead, just that one, Alma. He seemed to be the leader of the group. And the Lord focused on the first, the leader. When Jesus stumbles out of Gethsemane and sees his sleeping apostles, he says, to Simon Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Now, if I was Peter, again, misery loves company, I'd be saying, well, uh, James and John, they were sleeping too. But no, I'm looking at you, Peter, because you're the leader. I expect more of you. Alma, arise and stand forth. Why persecutest thou the church of God? For the Lord has said, this is my church. There's a possessive pronoun for you. I will establish it. How personal the Lord is with his people here. Alma the Younger is such a parallel to Saul, who became Paul, in the New Testament. And what does the risen Lord say to Saul on his road to Damascus? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. This is personal, Saul. Your persecution of the Christians is a persecution of the Christ. Alma, this is my church. I will establish it. Nothing is going to overthrow it except perhaps the transgression of my people, which you are causing. Verse 14, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people 
and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father. I think the order there is key. Alma chose to be God's servant before he chose to be his son's father. And the loyalties went in that order too. What had dad been doing? He has prayed with much faith concerning thee, that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. I wonder what he meant by that. He's prayed with much faith concerning thee. Was that faith in God's power to reach his son in ways that he'd never been able to? Probably. Was that faith in Alma the Younger's potential? I have so much faith that he will change once he's truly brought face to face with what he's doing. Was that faith in everything God had just told Alma the Elder back in Mosiah chapter 26? Faith that scarlet sin could become white as wool, as had happened in his own experience. I'm sure it was all of these. And it was with all that faith that he prayed to God that his son could be brought to a knowledge of the truth. The angel then says, For this purpose have I come to convince thee, not convince thee that the church is true, not convince thee that you have to change, simply to convince thee of this, of the power and authority of God. You need to know that God is real. That is bedrock foundational. Upon that, every subsequent layer of testimony will grow. You have to know what you're up against. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, Jesus said to Saul. You need to know what you're up against, that there is a God in heaven who does indeed care how you live. What you choose to do with that knowledge will then be up to you. But there must be no excuse about ignorant sinning. Verse 15, he makes it so clear. Can you dispute the power of God? I'm here, right in front of you. My voice is shaking the earth. Don't you see me? I'm sent from God. So I say unto thee, go and remember. Go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam. Surrounded by your prosperity here in the land of Zarahemla, it might be so easy to forget the captivity that your fathers were delivered from. Remember the great things he's done for them. They were in bondage just like you are, but they knew it. You don't. He has delivered them. He can deliver you if you'll come. Now I say unto thee, Alma, yes, God knows your name. Go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers may be answered. And then this interesting ending, and this, even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. Those were the last words, verse 17. And the angel departed. What a mic drop. Even if you want to destroy yourself, fine. Drop it. Leave. Talk about kicking against the pricks. There is an honoring of agency here. You don't have to go God's way. That would be infringing upon your agency. But you must stop infringing the agency of those who choose to follow Christ. Me forcing you would not be fair to you. But what you are doing in stealing the hearts of church members, that's not fair to them. So do what you want to do. Destroy yourself, fine, but stop destroying the church of God. Verse 18, the result, Alma and those that were with him fell again to the earth. So great was their astonishment 
For with their own eyes they had beheld an angel of the Lord. His voice was as thunder. It shook the earth. They knew that there was nothing save the power of God that could shake the earth and cause it to tremble as though it would part asunder. Eyes, ears, knowledge, which we could associate with either the mind or the heart. Remember how Doctrine and Covenant section 1 begins? Thanks to the restoration, there is no eye that shall not see, no ear that shall not hear, no heart that shall not be penetrated. Even the blind eye and deaf ear and hardened heart of Alma the Younger was pierced with a knowledge of the truth. And consequently, verse 19, Alma, this man of flattering words and much speech, was struck speechless. He became dumb. He couldn't open his mouth. He became weak. He couldn't move his hands. He became helpless. The others had to carry him and lay him before his father. I love the turnaround that these words suggest. He's dumb, therefore no more flattering words. He's weak, no more charismatic strength as the son of the high priest. Helpless, no more thinking you're independent and can do anything you want with no consequence. On the other hand, if those words suggest what had just ended, those words also suggest what was about to begin. How would you describe a newborn baby? Dumb, weak, and helpless are pretty good adjectives. And that's what Alma the Younger is about to become. Dumb, no longer using words to justify himself or rationalize his actions or to fight or talk back to God or his father. Weak, humbly recognizing his need for additional enabling strength. Helpless, able to recognize that he cannot deliver himself. That's what Limhi's people needed to realize. But that God would deliver him, which is what his father's own experience proved so clearly. Well, how's dad going to react? As a bunch of the wayward boys in the ward bring back your own son basically in a coma. I can't imagine what I, how I would react. But dad in verse 20, once they told the story of what had happened unto them, his father rejoiced for he knew it was the power of God. I just love the irony of this. You see, your son is just passed out. Your son is in a coma and he's like, yes, this is exactly the answer to the prayer that I need. Well, maybe not exactly, but this is the power of God. Verse 21, he gathers a multitude so that they can witness what the Lord had done for his son. He sees an, a missionary opportunity when it presents itself, even in the form of his seemingly lifeless boy. you got to come check this out. And not just so they can watch what happens. Notice he says, I want you to see what God has done for my son. He didn't say, come and see what God has done to him. Laid him out low. No, this was something done for his benefit. So in 22, they're still not out of the woods. They know something evil has stopped. But do they know yet that something righteous has begun? No, because it hasn't. So he gathers his priests in verse 22, and they begin to fast and to pray that the Lord would open the mouth of Alma, that his limbs might receive their strength, that the eyes of the people might be opened to see and know of the goodness and glory of God. This is not just our son that I'm worried about. It's our people but his conversion might lead to theirs. And so it did. Verse 23, they fasted and prayed for the space of two days and two nights. It seems fitting that this seemingly lifeless boy would come back 
on the third day. A beautiful type there. And when he does, he stands and speaks and says, to be of good comfort. Why? Verse 24, one of the ultimate sources of comfort. I have repented of my sins. And as a result, I have been redeemed of the Lord. I am born of the Spirit. Isn't that what Dad taught at the Waters of Mormon? Isn't that what King Benjamin taught a generation before? And amazingly, those are in the past tense. I've repented. I've been redeemed. All in two days and two nights? We'll come back to that speed in a moment. Verse 25, The Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, men, women, nations, kindreds, tongues, people, everybody, must be born again. Because we're all in that same sinking ship. We all need to recognize our carnality, our fallen state. We need to be changed from that to a state of righteousness. We need to be redeemed of God. We have to become his sons and daughters. King Benjamin must be smiling from above hearing those words because they're so similar to his own. In verse 26, that's how you become a new creature. And that's what I am, a new creature. Creature sounds like an odd word. Just a creature, some kind of animal. Well, that describes more what he'd been before, right? This vile sinner, more of the animal, the carnal within him. But I love that it's a new creature because creature suggests creation. I am a new creation and creation suggests creator. I'm born of God. He has refashioned me. He's made me beautiful out of ashes. If that doesn't happen, verse 27, then we're all likely to be cast off. I know it. I was like to be cast off. I'm exhibit A for the natural man, but now I'm exhibit A for the spiritually reborn man of God. He describes the process more in verse 28. After wading through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death. I wish I understood better what he meant by that repenting nigh unto death. His father had described that his repentance as sore. Well, this one sounds even worse. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's an interesting verse about resisting sin. And it mentions, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I wonder if there's something along that, that, those lines. Jesus resisted unto blood, if we consider Gethsemane. I don't know yet what it means for us to resist temptation or strive against sin unto blood or what it means here to repent nigh unto death but there is a seriousness to this that I think sometimes is lacking when we glibly say oh sorry I did so, such and such a thing notice also the verb choice Alma says he had waded through much tribulation you ever tried to wade through water I grew up in Southern California and loved spending time at the beach I love playing football on the beach, but I recognize there's a huge difference between running along the sand and running through the surf, especially once the water gets beyond knee deep and you are wading through it. When Alma speaks of wading through tribulation, it sure seems like slow progress to me. And yet compare that to the Lord's verb. If we wade, the Lord snatches. And that seems to be such a quick rescue. The Lord in his mercy hath seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning 
and I am born of God. Repentance might take a long time. Forgiveness doesn't. Repentance might be a slow grind, but forgiveness can be a quick snatch by a merciful God. Verse 29, Alma doesn't sugarcoat what he's been through. My soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness, from the bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss, but now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I'm snatched. There's that word again. And my soul is pained no more. Alma will use a lot of those same words and some extra ones when he describes this experience to his son, Helaman, in chapter 36 of Alma. But just ponder them. Gall, bitterness, bonds, abyss, darkest, racked. Ever seen the rack as an instrument of medieval torture? That's what he was feeling. Torment? That's intense. But his soul was no longer pained because he was newborn. Verse 30, I rejected my Redeemer. I denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. I rejected my Redeemer. He was mine, but I wouldn't claim him. So how could he possibly claim me? But he did once I let him. That's what he does. He remembers every creature of his creating. That's why I'm a new creature. He's never done creating and recreating us. He'll make himself manifest unto all until 31 is fulfilled. Every knee bowing like mine has. Every tongue confessing like mine is. Because otherwise they will quake and tremble and shrink. Just like I did when the angel came. From that time forward, verse 32, Alma begins to teach the people, like father, like son, as do those who were with Alma at the time the angel appeared. They traveled round about through all the land. They published to all the people the things which they had heard and seen. They preached the word of God in much tribulation, being greatly persecuted by those who were unbelievers, their former friends, being smitten by many of them. Again, Saul went through much of the same, persecuted by his former fellow persecutors. He who was going with the flow one moment is now trying to trudge back upstream, trying to make a change in what he'd been doing before. Perhaps this is one of those examples of what I call enforced empathy. You were persecuting believers and you didn't care at all what they felt. Well, now you will because you will share with them in their sufferings. You will be persecuted and suffer right alongside them. You didn't choose to know how they felt. So now you will be compelled to know. That doesn't stop them though. In verse 33, notwithstanding all this, they did impart much consolation to the church. They confirmed their faith. They exhorted them with long suffering and much travail to keep the commandments of God. 35, they did it all throughout the land of Zarahemla, among all the people, that word keeps coming up, they zealously strived to repair all their injuries. They confessed all their sins. They published all the things which they'd seen. They explained the prophecies and scriptures to all who desired to hear them. Why so all-encompassing? Because God had reached down even to their low level. And if I'm worth saving 
then everyone else is worth saving too. Or perhaps this way, if even I can change, then everyone can change. And everyone needs that chance. Thus, they were instruments in the hands of God in bringing many. They tried with all, succeeded with many, to bringing them to the knowledge of the truth, yea, to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And how blessed are they. Can you sense Abinadi perking up from the grave? As the passage that he explained so powerfully is again being cited. Isaiah chapter 52. Those who publish peace. Those who publish good tidings of good. Those who declare unto the people that the Lord reigneth. The sin-stained feet of Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah are becoming beautiful feet upon the mountains. But as we all know, feet are made for walking. And that's exactly what they want to do. In chapter 28, they ask their father, can we go? Can we use these now beautiful feet to go publish peace everywhere else? In verse 1, they desire of their father. This is the sons of Mosiah. They desire of him that he would grant unto them that they might with those whom they had selected. It's not just the four sons of Mosiah. They have some junior companions with them. Please, Dad, let us go to the land of Nephi so we can preach the things which we've heard unto the Lamanites. Now, if we've read the Book of Mormon, we know the end of the story. One of the truly miraculous conversions in history. But this is passing in real time. They haven't peeked ahead to the end. They have no idea if they'll be successful or even if they'll survive. They don't care. In verse 2, they acknowledge their ignorance of that. That perhaps, we don't know, they might bring them to the knowledge of the Lord. I, I get it, Dad. This is iffy. I know that like half the kingdom just escaped from the Lamanites. But God gave us a chance and we've got to give them a chance too. Again, he uses the word perhaps in the middle of verse 2. That perhaps we might cure them of their hatred. I love that word, cure. Since hatred is a disease. Earlier, it was described as an eternal hatred, which suggests an incurable disease. But the sons of Mosiah want to test every possibility. Perhaps there's a cure after all. And that cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It cured us. Why can't it cure hardened Lamanites? They might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God. They might become friendly to one another. That way there'd be no more contentions in all the land. Dad, king, isn't that what you want? Peace for your people? It's not just worldly peace that we want, though. Verse 3, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature. For they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. This quaking and trembling was a different version from the quaking and trembling they received in the previous chapter when the angel appeared. The first was fear for what they would face. This was fear for others. That empathy is working. Verse 4, the Spirit of the Lord is working too, working upon them. For they were the very vilest of sinners. But the Lord in his infinite mercy, no wonder we should try. Yes, we have hope that there's a cure for an eternal hatred. 
for an incurable disease because the Lord's mercy is infinite. It reached even to us. And we needed that infinite mercy. We'd had anguish of soul that seemed almost as infinite. We suffered much and feared much that we should be cast off forever. Not that we would, not that we might, but that we should. We recognize what we deserved. Justice would have condemned us. But infinite mercy gave us another chance. And we want to use it to give other people chances too. So they've plead with their father for many days in verse 5. This is not just a token effort and then, ah, didn't work. Dad wouldn't let us. They just wouldn't give up on the Lamanites because God hadn't given up on them. As any worried father would, King Mosiah went and inquired of the Lord in verse 6. Should I let them go? I imagine he's worried about their physical lives going among enemy territory. But I wonder too if he was worried about spiritual lives. We just had a huge group of people return after three generations away in enemy territory. Maybe you're the next Zenith who goes wanting, seeing what was good among the Lamanites, not wanting to kill them. But instead of you changing them, they change you. And I cannot afford another three generations. I don't want to go through Hansen's Law all over again and pray for my great-grandchildren's return someday. I wonder if his concern was both temporal and spiritual. But the Lord reassures him in both respects. Verse 7, let them go up. For many shall believe on their words. Second promise. They shall have eternal life. What a promise for this father to see in his sons. And third, I will deliver thy sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. Talk about a blessing. Three incredible things. Success, survival, and salvation. I do wonder though, if Mosiah were forced to choose only one of them, what would he ask for for his boys? I'm okay if they have an unsuccessful mission. I'm even okay if they don't survive it. But please save my boys. In his infinite mercy, the Lord promised all three. So of course, Mosiah grants what, that they would go do it. And maybe we're missing something in this brief record, less than 100th part, right? But according to this, Mosiah didn't pass on the good news to his sons. He just gave them permission. I hope that's really what happened. I just think there's something beautiful about him knowing, but letting his sons go in faith without any kind of sense of guaranteed success or even survival, let alone salvation. Let them exercise faith of their own. The rest of the chapter we can sum up very briefly. As King Mosiah now has no one to give the kingdom to, None of his sons would accept his earthly kingdom. They had a better kingdom to build. And so what does dad do? In verse 11, he takes the plates of brass, the plates of Nephi, the plates from Limhi, both the ones that Limhi's people recorded of their own experience and the ones that they found in this desolate land that they had brought to Mosiah to translate. The rest of this chapter, Mormon kind of takes us on a quick tangent to talk about those plates and to talk about the interpreters that Mosiah used as a seer to be able to understand them. They learned on those plates about the Jaredites. We'll understand this record months from now when we get to the book of Ether. But when they read it, verse 18, they mourned exceedingly for people they'd never met and a civilization they'd never know. They were filled with sorrow, but they also were filled with joy 
rejoicing about the much knowledge that it gave them. See how we've come full circle back to where we started today, back in Mosiah 25? This real emotion, seeing real people, recognizing the highs and the lows of their experience, being able to perceive the hand of God reaching out to them in mercy. King Mosiah II then takes all of these things, these records, these artifacts, the most important things of his civilization, and passes them on to a repentant sinner, Alma the Younger, with the commandment that he should keep and preserve them and also keep a record of the people, handing them down from one generation to another, even as they had been handed down from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. And we're back up and running. Again, like has happened so many times before, the plates passed, faith passed along from one runner to the next, from one generation to another. And I love the fact that the Alma that will carry us through the longest book in the Book of Mormon, which we'll begin studying next week, is a self-proclaimed very vilest of sinners who through the mercy of Christ has become an instrument in the hands of God. Most of what he writes will talk about ex examples of others doing likewise. Changes brought about through the condescending grace of Jesus Christ. So can people really change? The question I asked you at the beginning, of course they can. They can through Jesus Christ. What do we do with those who are wayward? We love them. We teach them. We help them. We forgive them. And do we cry at movies? Well, I'll let you decide. But do we feel the reality of the stories that we are reading? I hope that we do. These are real people that can be a real influence on you and on me. I pray that we'll learn from their examples and, better yet, follow them. That we can trust in a God of infinite mercy that will forgive us as often as we repent. One who takes the gall of bitterness and replaces it with the sacramental wine. One who snatches us out of our sins. However long we've been wading through self-inflicted affliction. I testify of him. I'm grateful for him. And whether you come to know him at the shaking of the earth by an angel, or simply are brought to repentance through the still small voice, I pray that you'll come to know the loving Lord that is beckoning you home. I'll see you next week as we continue to learn of him. Thank you for being a part of this.